Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Good morning, church family. I want you to know I miss you. But listen, I wanted to be the one to introduce the speaker today who is my children's youth pastor. Our youth pastor, Evan, is going to be preaching this morning. He serves our youth faithfully. He serves our house faithfully. He is a man of God, and we're so grateful to have him sharing the word this morning. So church, come on, let's welcome Pastor Evan as he brings the word of God today. God bless you. Woo! Good morning. Holy cow, I am so excited to be here. Listen, I'm just going to be blunt with you guys, second service. You missed out. You missed out first service because we had 160, 160 teenagers right here singing their guts out, jumping, hooping, and hollering for Jesus. And that is awesome. It was so great. So here's the deal. And, and listen, they were, when I was speaking, people were amening and whooping and say it again. So I need that kind of same, ener- same energy. So dig deep. All right, channel your inner, channel your inner 16-year-old, and let's get to work. <laughs> and uh, so I love it. I love it. We've been having this thing called NAR Camp for the past couple of days. We've been going nuts. We've been having color wars and and, and and playing archery tag and worshiping Jesus and learning more about Him. And our theme for the weekend um, has been rebel. Everyone say rebel. Rebel, and we've been looking at Satan's schemes and God's battle plan, but this weekend could not have been possible without a ton of just wonderful volunteers and helpers. So listen, if you helped volunteer in any capacity at Narcamp, whether you're on the prayer team or setting up Zipline, would you just stand up for me real quick, and can we give them a round of applause? I don't know, they might all be serving still right now. Hey, there we go, there we go. And um, yeah, all of our our teenagers and and that whole group is out right now doing some squad time and doing a scavenger hunt right now, and they're having a blast. And I also just want to give a huge shout out also to Jana Whittafield and Joy Hall. They are like the the logistic planning gurus for putting this whole thing on and making it just a wonderful, excellent camp for our teenagers. So I every time I speak, I always want to do something that makes you remember every time I speak, okay? So I just wanna drill it into your brains every time. And so sometimes I come up on stage and I dance to a song or I have a teenager come up and chew gum in a microphone. Uh, Some of you still remember that and it still gives you nightmares a little bit because you just hear that chomping noise and you're like, "Ah." and uh, so today I want to show you something so terrifying. So death, so death, depth defying, so horrible, so tremendous, so whatever. I sound like one of those 50s, like B-rated horror movies, right? Trailers like, ah, this is what it is. Are you ready? Drum roll. Here we go. Drum roll. This is a drum roll. I said channel your 16-year-old. Here we go. Here we go. All right, drum roll. Here it is. It is a snail. I know. It's not that terrifying. It's not that gross. It's not that hideous or, um, you know, it's kind of cute. Yeah, it's got like, you know, it's got these fun little, you know, eyeballs. I can't, I don't remember if these are its eyeballs or antenna. I'm not a snail expert. But uh, so this right here is actually called a giant African snail. Say, ooh. 
Ah, yes, the giant African snail. Now, this may seem like your normal average snail, but don't be fooled, all right? Because this giant African snail is actually illegal here in the U.S. Yes, that's right, I said illegal, all right? Because the giant African snail is actually a pest that if, if it's not controlled, can cause millions, yes, millions of dollars worth of damage to crops, to houses, to um, coastlines, all, I mean, it is just horrible. And these snails actually have the ability to carry a deadly disease that we humans can die from. So whoever this woman is holding it, I hope she knows Jesus. That's all I, uh, seriously. But these things are terrible. And they multiply so quickly and they're so hard to get rid of. I'm not kidding. I YouTube this thing. They, they, people have tried to use pesticides, different kinds of predators, and they can't get rid of them. They've even used chemical warfare and flamethrowers. Flamethrowers, people. You know they had a meeting about this, right? Like, what are we going to do about these snails? And I know this guy, you probably used to be a youth pastor and was like, Flamethrowers, flamethrowers. And they were like, fine, let's just, you know. So can you just, <laughs> like, a, like an army of people with flamethrowers, like, come here, snail. Like, let's just be like, are you okay? It's just a snail. It's terrifying. They've gone to great lengths to try and get rid of these snails. I, they're so tough and resistant to everything. They don't die. I've coinly ca- uh, called them uh, a diehard snail. They remind me of Bruce Willis a little bit. <laughs> Um, right? They're the diehard snail, right? They just, they just don't die. They never give up, right? I made that joke in first service and everyone who was like older was like, ha, ha, ha. And all my middle school and, t- and high schoolers were like, I don't. Bruce who? Bruce? What are you talking about? Bruce Willis. Uh, so my question for us this morning is, how can such a small creature cause such a wide spread problem. How could such a small creature cause such a widespread problem? Like how does it happen? It takes only a little time and a little neglect. And you see, I want to talk today about the little daily sins, the snail-sized habits that slither undetected in the shadows beneath a fire-resistant shell and eat up our lives from the inside out. You see, if we're not alert, if we're not practicing good biblical truths, then, these die, then we practice these diehard sins every single day. And once they've settled in, extermination becomes all the more difficult. So I'm going to give you a list of people, fictional people, they're not real people that I know, but maybe you can relate to, to some of them and, and, and some of the issues they deal with. Maybe you're like, maybe you're like Melody. Ever since her dog ate up the neighbor's prized petunias, she's faked peace and avoids her neighbor and small talks her way out of awkward exchanges. You see, Melody will do anything she can to escape life, even just by scrolling on the phone. Or maybe you're like Eliza. She loves to hear the juicy news of her friends' last breakups or school and workplace drama. She never adds to it, but she does soak it in. Or maybe you're like Carl, he sleeps in, he procrastinates, he cuts corners, and is always ready to fire off an excuse. Carl's mantra is, I'm too busy. 
Or maybe you're like Drew. He's one of the funniest guys people know, but sometimes his jokes go a little too far. Drew's jokes can at times be insensitive and careless and hurtful to others. Or maybe you're like Rob. Rob works in a high-stress job where small details have big consequences. When his expectations aren't met at work or at home, Rob snaps. Or maybe you're like Kristen. She doubts everything. She doubts her friends, her family, and even herself. When she sits in a Sunday service and, he, and she hears about God's love for her, there's a small voice in her head that says, it's for everyone except me. Or maybe you're like Carson. He's stopped looking at porn for quite a while, but he holds a lingering eye on beautiful women in his life or on social media. God made beautiful things, right? He tells himself. I'm just appreciating his creation, but he always has a way to justify. Yeah, he knows deep down something needs to change. I mean, we're like Janet. Everywhere she goes, she feels guilty, regardless of what she does or how her friends encourage her. Janet's closest companion is a low-grade feeling of shame. She knows she's a loser, and she knows everyone knows it. Or maybe, finally, you're like Richard. Richard, he has a perfect Christian life, a gym, a beautiful wife, beautiful Jesus-loving children, a lovely home in one of the best neighborhoods, a job that he loves and desires, but something scratches at Richard's heart, discontent. He often catches himself fantasizing about having a different life. He wishes something would just change. He's just not as happy as he used to be, and he doesn't know why. Things that used to fill him with joy don't seem to have the same color. Life would be better if, is a common thought that circles Richard's head. You see, these struggles, these sin issues, they're not huge. They're not dramatic. They won't make headlines in the church or in the world. They are, in fact, the kind of small, respectable sins that nag at us relentlessly. And even when we address them, these diehard sins, by their definition, will not quickly or easily surrender. And what's worse is that some of us don't even know we have any. We don't even know. So this is what we're going to look at. This is what we're going to look at this morning and how do we rebel against these diehard sins in our lives. You see, at NAR camp, we've been looking at the false king and the true king and how we need to rebel against the false king and live for the true king. So, number one, how do we do this? Number one, we walk into the rebellion against your diehard sin knowing who is with you. So let's turn to the book of Acts chapter four. This is one of my absolute favorite passages and there's a small verse in this wonderful passage that, that demonstrate how we so desperately need to know who is with us. Here we go, Acts chapter four starting in verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people uh, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. This is Peter and John, you'll see. Arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Can I just give glory to God real quick? Because last night, a bunch of teenagers got saved for the first time. They, they accepted Jesus into their lives. God is working through through this generation, I'm so excited. 
Um, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, <clears throat> and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, they had just healed a man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has been become has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Come on, let's go. They had been with Jesus. This is huge. The court could tell that they had been with God. The presence of God was present with these men when they walked in the room and it was palpable. Did I say that right? <laughs> Something about the way they spoke and carried themselves, the way they answered the court's questions with authority but not with rudeness. It struck the court that they were just common men. It struck them that in a way they could, it went from, they wanted to kill them and then later on in the passage it said that they respected them and they let them go. Let them go. And it, just, it wasn't just the way that Peter and John behaved. It was because they knew who was with them. It's because Jesus was with them. That's what we need to combat the enemy. Not another formula or 10-step process or a self-help book. We have to become less self-reliant and independent in a nation that was born out of it and actually become dependent on a good shepherd, on a very good shepherd. So let me make something very clear. You and I need the presence of Jesus in your life every day after you get saved. Every day. The atmosphere of a room changes when Jesus walks in. If you're a believer and Jesus is in you, that means every time you walk in a room because of Jesus, you have the ability to change things in the room. And the same goes for our hearts and our minds, our old ways of thinking. The presence of Jesus doesn't just change things around us, he changes things inside of us. He changes things. Good job, you're doing good, I love it. We can't do anything I'm about to talk about. We can't do anything I'm about to talk about without the presence of the Trinity in our lives. Change is impossible outside of Jesus' redemptive and restorative presence in our lives. We need this reminder because it can be pretty bleak. It really can. It's really bleak out there. When I take a second and look at my depravity and my sin and my fallen nature, and I look at this world and this culture that hates Jesus and, and the demonic presence trying to oppress us and Satan himself just wanting us wiped off the face of the planet, it can look pretty bleak. 
But my two favorite words that I love to use that are probably in the Bible as well is this, but Jesus. But Jesus. But Jesus. You see, things change when those two words are combined. In Ephesians 2, 4, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, things change when the master of the universe steps into the ring and all of a sudden that mountain of oppression, of hopelessness becomes an anthill. David knew who was on his side. The apostle knew, the apostle Paul knew who was always with him. Daniel knew how mighty God was when he walked into the lion's den. Joshua grew courageous because of the Lord of hosts. Peter grew bold when the presence of God swept like a mighty wind in the upper room. Friends, things change when you're in the presence of a lion. You can walk with your chest puffed up and your head held high because the lion of the tribe of Judah has your back. The king, the blood of the king runs through your veins. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. How sweet is the presence of Jesus. Like a caring physician and a wonderful friend, he nurses our wounds and fills us with hope. Yet in the spiritual realm, he wages war on our behalf. Sword drawn and Braveheart blue paint ready. He is work, he's doing it. The greatest act of rebellion I think that's ever happened in all of existence against Satan and his schemes for you and for me that Jesus ever did was die on a cross. And not just die on a cross, but rise from the grave. Rise from the grave. So, <laughs> don't tell me, do not tell me you cannot conquer your diehard sins. Don't tell me your sin issue is too great for my God. Don't tell me there's no hope for you. Don't tell me you've gone too far because there is hope because Jesus is in the business of turning graves into gardens. Don't tell me he can't. I do a lot of off-the-cuff counseling with a bunch of teenagers and parents and friends and pastors and classmates of, of mine, and, and there are times where they come to me and I just, I can't, I can't get past this. I don't know what to do. I, I, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just, there's no, I, I'm giving up. I'm never gonna change, there's no way. Sometimes I have to remind them and you have to remind yourself and I have to remind myself who their God is, who our God is. Just as David looked into the eyes of Goliath and declared, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. This giant did not even stand a chance. He had no idea who he had just messed with and come against. The change maker resides in you. The king of kings believes in you. The Lord of Lord fights alongside you. We have to trust him to be the one to help us renew our minds and transform our hearts. We need him because in this independent nation we live in, we can be so easily try and just do it on ourselves and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just try harder. We can't. Jesus brings himself 
He brings himself into your situation. Jesus and his disciples did not present a a program or a tool for changing lives. Jesus did not create an app for fixing problems. He brought himself. His perfect person, his unstoppable power, his eternal promises and purposes. Jesus entered our world. He understood our needs and brought to us his power and grace. Woo! (laughs) So there is an excellent passage in Matthew that, that describes Christ's normal mode of ministry in our lives that I believe we need to practice if we're going to conquer our diehard sins. It's in Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep, excuse me, without a shepherd. In this really unassuming passage, Matthew gives us a glimpse of Jesus' normal mode of ministry. And this is the exact model we should use when we approach our diehard sins. So here's the first one. Bring Christ and his provisions to bear on your beliefs and desires. We spent just a good chunk just a second ago chatting already about bringing Christ in, but what, is, what about his provisions? You see, in that passage of Matthew, he proclaimed they didn't just heal the sick, he didn't just have compassion to them, it said that he also taught them the gospel, that he went to their synagogues and he preached the good news. By his perfect knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, he not only cared for people's broken and diseased bodies, but he brought help for their souls. So we need, my friends, we need to learn to sharpen our swords. We need to learn to sharpen our swords. And our sword is the Bible. Our sword is the word of God. His word is like a scalpel that can remove these issues so perfectly. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about how his word is sufficient, is able to help us in any area we face. Psalm 1 talks about a person who meditates on it day and night and they're like a tree planted by rivers of water. When Joshua is about to go into battle and start reclaiming the land that God had promised to Moses and and the fathers before, God doesn't give Joshua an intricate strategy on sword development or or tactics or or spear fighting. No, no, no. This is what he says in Joshua. He says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Isn't that so interesting? In the book of Joshua, one of the most blood-soaked, blood-bathed books of the Bible, like just years of fighting. And before Joshua goes and does this, Jesus or God doesn't say, okay, here's like, you need to have the higher ground and you need to whatever. He says, no. You need my word. If you're going to do this, you need my word. If you're going to go into battle, you need to meditate on my word. When we aren't meditating on God's word, it's like sipping salt water. 
It slowly kills us. We need to meditate so that we can learn more about God's glory and how, we can trans- how he can transform us. So I'm from the Kansas City, Missouri area, and so I love really good barbecue. I am, one of, I am a barbecue snob, okay? Um, I really like, I've grown up my whole life eating at like hole-in-the-wall barbecue places in Kansas City, Missouri, and I just, I love barbecue. And he just, and he just meat lovers in the house. Can I get a what, what, like, come on now, you know, like, so I grew up going, like living in Kansas city and they had like just barbecue, like festivals and contests and just big, I mean, just city blocks of just old guys and their roasters just roasting meat. And you just walk down this street and you're just like, oh my God, it's like the yellow brick road of barbecue. It's just like. Oh my gosh, like it was just like a slice of heaven and you would just walk down and you know there'd be these guys and they'd just be like, you know, I'm like, you know, eight years old walking and I'm just like, what are they all doing? And, and my father goes, son, smell it, just take it. You know, like it's just so good. And, um, you know, and so, you know, a good barbecue person, um, when, they, when they prepare the meat and they prepare the, the you know, the pork tenderloin or, or whatever, um, you know, when they, when they put the spices on it and the oils on it and the rubs on it, you know, a, a good barbecuer, they won't just throw it on the meat. What they do is they actually take it and they'll massage it in and they'll rub it in and they'll take, take those oils and those spices and just, you know, push it into the meat, right? And that's exactly, yeah, some of you guys are salivating. I probably shouldn't have done this because now all you can think about is, honey, all of a sudden I need to go get barbecue right now. So I'll make this quick. (laughs) But that's what we need to do for our hearts. If the spices and oils and the good stuff is God's word, we need to take God's word and rub it in. We need to rub it into our hearts. We need to take what we learn on Sunday mornings or what, what our, our young adults learn at the collective or what our FSMers learn on Sunday nights. They need, we need to take what we learn and take it home and rub it in and meditate on it. Biblical meditation means this. It means to think personally, practically, seriously, and earnestly on how the truth of God's word should look in our lives. That's what it is. When a believer meditates, they fill their mind with truth so that their minds become governed by the attitude of the Savior. Meditation heals a believer's heart and settles their mind. Biblical meditation ties people's fluttering minds to their spiritual anchor of stability. See, I like reading a lot of books by old dead guys. And um, some of my favorite quotes are from some of the Puritans that were believers, like, you know, way back in the day. And so one of them, his name was William Bates, he said this, uh, there is great inconsistency in the thoughts of believers, but meditation doth, doth, what a great word, we need to bring that back, doth chain and fasten them to God. A guy by the name of Edmund Smith also said this, another Puritan back in the day said, meditation will lead to a calmness of disposition a serenity of mind and a certainty about the ways of God. God's spirit always uses the balm of his word, his truth to provide lasting comfort and help. The spirit slows down a worrying mind and restores order to the soul of his creatures. Divine meditation has a multifaceted value. It provides a spiritual discernment 
It improves our Bible reading and our prayer lives. It applies the general truths of the Bible personally and specifically to our lives. It strengthens our hearts by focusing on spiritual truths and provides lasting benefit from dwelling on the truths we may already know. So because meditation has such spiritual value, (laughs) Satan hates it. And you see, I love doing things that make his blood boil. I love doing things that just grind his gears, that make him go, oh, because he hates it. That's why I feel like so many of us, when we sit down to read our Bible, it's really hard because the enemy doesn't want you to gaze and meditate on the Father. He wants you to gaze and meditate on something else. Because he knows that if you do this, then he is he's going to fail. He's going to fail. Number three, we need to enter with joy. Enter with joy into your struggle against destructive daily habits. So again, in Matthew, we saw Jesus walking around the synagogues and the cities and the streets. And he entered our world. And even walked our streets and he did it with joy. He did it with joy. You see, this weekend at Narcamp, we have been looking at what it means to rebel against the enemy's schemes, right? And by living for the true king. And I believe one of those schemes that we hear in our head quite often is this. Don't deal with your sin. Don't deal with your sin. Your sin isn't that bad, or it's too bad, so what's the matter? You know, it's, who's it going to affect, really? It's not going to hurt anybody. You know, it's just you and your thing. It's fine. But my friends, here's Christ's acceptance of us by sheer grace frees us to deal honestly with our sin habits that plague us. One of the most important Christian freedoms and one of the most neglected is the freedom to look sin in the face. We no longer, we no longer need to be ashamed or hide from our sin. Here's a list we can do. You can face sin instead of hiding it. You can own your sin instead of blaming others. You can accept your sin instead of making excuses. You can identify your sin as sin instead of minimizing it. You can acknowledge your sin instead of denying it. You can trust God with your sin instead of despairing. Jesus frees us to bring our sin into the light of his forgiveness. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be repentant or convicted. We will get to that. But shame no longer has a place. None. If you begin, that's right. If you begin to deal with your sin, if you start to look in the nooks and crannies and you start to feel shame and guilt and condemnation, it's not from my father. It's not from our father. We need to deal with it. This is where we so badly need the Holy Spirit. So desperately. We need to ask him to make evident to us the old ways we've gotten used to. 
Don't have the mindset that you need to be fixed right away. Have the mindset of improving until the day you die. Only then when we get to heaven and we will be completely, completely, utterly fixed. And with Jesus. And we get to walk with him in the cool of the day. Oh, how great that would be. That will be. So we need to make a list. Make a list of our diehard sins. Don't be discouraged by your list of hangups. Instead, rejoice. Because what you are doing is something that Satan hates. He hates it. He hates it when, when, when you and I and others are aware of our temptations and sins and I love doing things that make his blood boil. You see, keeping stuff in the dark and below the radar is one of the silent killers that the, enemies, that the enemy uses. And it sounds like this, don't tell it. Don't tell it to someone. Because if they knew, they'll disown you. If they knew you're family struggles and, and, your, and your sin issues and your doubts and your worries and your diehard sins, it'll, they'll disown you. They'll, it'll ruin your reputation. It's too difficult. You're, you just, there's, don't, well, you're just, you're introverted, you know, so just keep it to yourself or, you know, you're a guy. Guys don't do that. Guys don't open up. No one will understand. There's no hope for your situation, so why does it even matter? You know what's funny? You know what's crazy? Is that as sneaky as the enemy and his schemes are, are the exact red flags that spring up, that right when they come up, right when you hear those words, the second we hear those phrases, we need to release the hounds. We need to sound the alarms, turn on the searchlights, and snuff out the enemy that has infiltrated our hearts and minds. You need to drag those thoughts into the open and say, nah, you're not allowed here, and then go do something about it. You need to do something about it. You know what the, you know what the Hebrew phrase for, uh, Pastor Jim taught me this, you know what the, fr- the Hebrew phrase for rebuke means? It means to shut up. We need to rebuke those thoughts and say, shut up. No, I will not listen to this. I need to deal with my sin because I want to be more like my father. Number four, we need to understand our real needs in the fight. We need to understand our real needs, what we actually need. In that passage of Matthew, Jesus knew what the people needed. He understood. And he knew that they needed a shepherd. It said he walked around and he saw these helpless, hopeless people like sheep without a shepherd. Lost, scared, worrying, wondering. But what's so impressive about a shepherd? Like why? Like have you thought about it? Like God must really like shepherds because he uses them all over the place, all over the place in scripture. And I think it's because, Jesus, or it's because shepherds really know and understand their sheep. They really understand. A shepherd knows the whereabouts of his sheep, the dangers they face, the nourishment they lack, and the restoring care that they need. So here's what you don't need to fix. 
You don't need to just start by trying to fix your behavior. <gasps> what? Evan, did, you, did, you, did he just say that? Yes. Listen, I grew up in Missouri, and it rains there 24-7. And the weeds there, it's like from Jumanji. Like they just grow, and they like you walk outside, and they just try to like grab you. It's insane. It's like the Amazon rainforest. I mean, weeds there, and it's, I mean, it's green, right? It's pretty, but it's just like so much. And I grew up on 27 acres of woods in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, and my dad had this trail that led to a pond. Uh, and, um, and so my job... <laughs> thanks a lot, Dad, was to try and always clean out the weeds from the trail. And he always told me when I was really little, you know, Evan, you don't just pull, you got to get the root. Don't just pull the weed, otherwise it'll just pop right back up. You got to get the root. And that's exactly what we have to do with our hearts. We can't just try and change our behavior and hope we'll change. We have to start right here. We have to focus on what, what are we worshiping with our, heart, with our hearts. We need to transform our hearts and then the behavior will follow. We need heart transformation, not behavior modification. So don't just start trying to be good. Don't just start by adding more rules or becoming more legalistic or bathing yourself up or wallowing in guilt. That's not, that's not what's going to work. What you do need is to place Christ back on the throne where he belongs right here. You see, when a little sheep, when a little sheep worships the shepherd, that sheep won't go anywhere the shepherd isn't because he knows that's where nourishment, joy, safety, and wholeness is found. So in those little everyday die-hard moments, scan your heart. What am I worshiping? I've talked about this before. What am I worshiping? What do I desire more than being like Christ or pleasing Christ? Why do I want to escape and scroll on social media more than I probably should? Why do I want to hear juicy news about others? Why does my blood boil when my expectations aren't met? Why am I so cynical towards the goodness of God? What am I searching for when my gaze is locked on a woman that isn't my wife? Why do I think everyone thinks I'm a loser? Why do I feel so discontent all the time? See, the book of James says that we go through quarrels and hardships and temptations in our lives because, the sin, because of the sinful desires in our hearts. Ephesians 4 goes even deeper. It says this, in, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? Their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. Paul even says more too that we need to put off the old us, that we need a renewed mind, that our hearts are naturally hardened towards God so they need to be softened and, to put, and then to put on the righteousness of Christ. Listen, I always tell my teenagers that note takers are world changers, so write this down. The goal of our rebellion with sin 
is not that we would just be better rule followers, but that we would be more faithful Christ lovers. The Christian, that's, there's that energy. That's right, it's good. The Christian alternative to immoral behaviors is not a new list of moral behaviors. It is the triumphant power and transformation of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our treasure. We may feel an overwhelming sense of despair, but we shouldn't give up in our battle of sin because by grace we can rejoice in the words of David. And when he says in Psalms 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We have abundant hope in the face of our sin. So for those of us that are attending NAR tonight, NAR camp, we're going to really peel back the layers and look at what it actually means to renew our minds, to transform our hearts, what it means to actually live for a true king. And for those of you who aren't attending NAR camp, that's okay. We're going to be recording that so, on, so you can watch it later on YouTube if you would like. Um, but let me leave you with this. Everything we just talked about, everything we just learned, Jesus' normal mode of ministry in our lives and in other people's lives and how we deal with diehard sins and what we need, we're called to do the same thing to others. We're called to do the same thing. The same way that Christ walked in the streets and the synagogues and the temples and people's homes and and he understood their needs and he listened to their needs and he didn't just provide care just to the physical but to the spiritual. You know, we all know, we probably, most of us will know the passage that he closes this with is that Matthew looks at his disciples and he says, the harvest is white. The harvest is white but the laborers are so few. So how many of us are willing to enter people's mess, understand them, and then bring Christ and everything he has to offer into that mess? What's the point of church then? If we're not living, living doing life together, sharing a meal together, breaking bread together, weeping with those who weep and laughing with those who laugh, we need to go to people that we trust, that we know are wise and biblical-minded and go, here's my mess. Here it is. And then they respond and go, yeah, <laughs> join the club. Here's my mess. Let's walk to the cross. Let's walk to Jesus together. Jesus says that many people are hurting and need exactly what he offers, but not a lot are willing to actually do it. It's everyone's call. So what a joy it would be then to enter in and do what we were made to do. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you didn't just enter our world and you don't just enter our world and say, you need to fix this, you need to fix that, you need to get this right. No, no, no. You enter our world with joy and with 
peace and patience and gladness and joy and you, you sit down with us and you understand. You understand that we don't need to be more legalistic or more rule followers. You understand that we just need you. And that as we learn to begin to put you on the throne, things change. When we trust in who you are, when we trust in your presence, things change. So God, I pray that Faith Bible Chapel and FSM and the collective and our small groups, that everyone here, that we would be a people, God, a people, a church that loves your word, meditates on your word, that doesn't get ashamed of our sin, but instead takes it to the cross and knows that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that we need to turn and gaze on you, that we need your presence so bad that we would choose to open up when everything inside of us is telling us no, that we would open up to people that we love and trust that are biblically minded and be a community that encourages one another, that comes alongside one another, that helps one another. God, thank you so much for everything you're doing at NAR Camp, for everything you're doing with this kids camp coming up, Jesus. Thank you that you love teenagers and kids, Jesus. Help us to be a church that gets behind them and loves them and, can, and points them to Jesus. In your name I pray.